All right, so a few weeks ago, I started the series called The Core. And my goal for the series was to talk about the basic principles of God's plan of salvation, to talk about the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And I mentioned in the first couple uh, messages about the series that we have a problem in our society and a lot, big problem in Christian culture where we assume people have heard the gospel message of Jesus, but in fact, but actually we assume that they've heard it so we don't explain the entire gospel to people, kind of give them bits and pieces. As a result, people kind of have this gospel message that they've heard, but they don't have the entire gospel. It's not that clear to them. So we're taking time during this series to go through five different core values or four principles of the gospel so we all understand the gospel clearly. It'd be like, imagine if I gave you a 500-piece puzzle, and I gave it to you and said, okay, put this puzzle together. But oh, by the way, the picture's missing from the front. I'll tell you a little bit what it looks like. There might be a tree or two, and might be a car in there, but you don't tell people exactly what's in there. And say, put that puzzle together. Oh, and then by the way, there's, a, there's, there's maybe 100 pieces missing, but good luck with it. And that's what happens to people when they don't have a clear picture of the gospel. They have a puzzle that's not altogether there. And there's a lot of missing pieces. And when there's missing pieces, what you do is you make assumptions over what's missing or you don't understand. It kind of creates a big problem. Because a lot of people in, input a lot of their own personal opinions, their own personal experiences into the gospel story, and they don't belong there. It actually creates a lot of confusion for people. So that's why we're going through these series very clearly and slowly. I've been doing a lot of repeating of what we talked about in the prior services. So we understand clearly the gospel message of Jesus Christ, and we understand exactly what the gospel is about. So when we talk about Christianity, we often refer to Christianity's relationship with God a relationship with Jesus. And it definitely is a relationship with Jesus. But I like this quote by Chuck Colson where he says, Christianity is not just a relationship with Jesus. It is a way of seeing all of life in reality. See, what Chuck is saying in this, in, in this quote is everything that we know about salvation, everything we know about the Bible is going to determine how we view the world, how we understand the world. So if you have an incorrect understanding of the gospel or of the Bible, it's going to impact the way you see everything around us. See, the Bible and Christianity is designed to give us a worldview. It's designed to give us a perspective of how we understand the world. And that's why understanding the gospel message is so important. See, if you're like me, <clears throat> when you do a puzzle, you like to put the borders together first. You like to find all the edge pieces, line those all out, put the border together, and then you put the inside together. It's usually a lot easier to put the inside together once you get the border done. And the gospel message of Jesus is like putting the border together of a puzzle. It's understanding what holds everything else together. So when you understand the border, you understand the rest of the Bible. When you understand the Bible, it helps you understand the border. But the border is kind of the framework of the gospel message. And that's pretty much what we're talking about in core one, two, three, and four. There's a Christian author, Greg Kukels, who uh, was greatly influenced by Chuck Colson's quote about Christianity's how, how we see the whole world. And in his book, The Story of Reality, Gregory says, Christianity is a story of how the world began, why the world 
is the way it is and what role we play in the drama and how all the plot lines of the story are resolved in the end. He talks in his book about how Christianity is a big, great, big story. And we enter in the story to try to understand our part, to understand what happened before us and what's going on now and what happens after us. And this author reminds us that every single good story or every single good movie has four parts. Every good movie starts with a beginning, then you come into a conflict, then there's a conflict resolution, and then there's an ending. Every single sitcom you watch, every single TV show always starts with a beginning, conflict, resolution, and then the end. And if you look at the story of the Gospel of Jesus, you see the same pattern. It's going to start with the beginning, which is the story of creation. Then it moves into the conflict, the fall of man, and the sinfulness, and enter the garden. And then we have the conflict resolution, which is the redemption, the plan of Jesus, which is the core we're talking about today. And the ending is the restoration. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about how core number one, core number one was that God is the holy, just, and gracious creator of all things. We talked about how God created us, each of us, with a plan and a purpose. That God didn't create us because he needed us so bad, but because he wanted us. Because he's a God of love. And because he's a God of love, he created us to live in a perfect relationship with him. That was his plan from the very beginning. But last week we talked about core two, which is that even though we're all created by God, we are all corrupted by sin. See, sins entered our world and caused each of us to sin. And that's the conflict. That's the conflict of the story. If God is a good and a just God, and we are required to live with God in perfection without sin, and yet we sin, what's the consequence? That's the conflict to the story. What is the new reality for us that we have sinned against a holy God? <clears throat> the scripture is pretty clear that every single one of us has rebelled. Romans 3 talks about all have turned aside. Every single person has sinned against God. Every single person. There's not some people that are exempt, but every person sinned against God. And then as Isaiah 59, it says, but our sins or our iniquities have separated us from God. So not only have we rebelled against God, but now we're separated from God. And the third thing is in Ephesians 2.1, it says, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. That every person is dead without God. And I mentioned this last week, but that the one thing all dead people have in common is there's absolutely nothing you can do for yourself when you're dead. If you're a dead person, you've got to rely on somebody outside of you that's more stronger and more powerful than you to do anything that matters in your life. A dead person can't change. A dead person can't reach out. A dead person does nothing but is dead unless somebody more powerful comes along to help you. And see, that's the bad news. In order to understand the good news of the gospel, you need to understand the bad news. And the bad news is sinfulness is caused a separation, and there's nothing that we can do about it. Every one of us is paralyzed to do anything about our sin, and that's why Romans 6 verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. And that's all the bad news for today's message.
Because the good news is at the end of this sentence, but it says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that takes us to our core that we're going to be talking about today, that core three, which is kind of the third border of the message of Christianity. This border is all about the conflict resolution. What's Jesus going to do about that situation that we have in our life that we're separated from a holy God and each of us deserves punishment? So we're going to talk about today in Core 3 that Jesus alone is able to remove our sin and restore us to God. <clears throat> so the first thing that Jesus had to do is he had to live the life that we could not live. See, in 1 John 3, verse 5, it says, You know that he appeared in order to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. See, the first thing that Jesus had to do, he had to become a man. He had to give up his divinity. He had to become a person. And you wonder, why do you have to do that? So you have to go back to the, the garden and remember that it was mankind that lost to the evil one. It was mankind that took away, it was Satan that took away from mankind in the garden. So the only way to get it back is another man to take it back. See, the world was assigned to a man in the garden to look over the garden to take care of it. But man disobeyed. And so it, Satan gained the power and authority back in the garden. So the only way to get that power and authority back is if another man comes to take it back. See, Jesus couldn't come to earth with all of his divine power, and with all of his divinity, and say, okay, now I'm going to fight against the devil. That would be unfair. Jesus had to come as a human being. He has to come as a man. He had to empty himself of all his divinity. That's what it tells us in Philippians 2, verse 6 and 7. It says, though he, talking about Jesus, was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Though he was, though he was God, he did not... Oh, okay, that's it. I thought there's a slide too. That's why I started reading again. All right, that was a little confusing. Okay, let me just read the second verse. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. See, Jesus had to start with nothing. He had to make sure it was fair. If he was going to fight against the evil one, he made sure it was fair, so he gave up all of his divinity. He gave up all of his power. He came to earth. He was born of, as all of you know, by two teenage parents wasn't born into luxury, wasn't born into any privilege, was born in a barn, spent his first night in a manger, a feeding trough. He had to learn to walk, he had to learn to talk, he had to eat, he had to drink, he had to have friends, he had to have a job. Every single experience that we went, go through, Jesus experienced. In fact, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 4.15, that for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. Jesus had to be tempted in every single way 
like we are to prove that he could be the Messiah. See, if Jesus was going to pay for our debt, he could have absolutely no debt of his own. Jesus could not have sinned a little bit. Otherwise, he would not be the perfect substitute to pay for our sin. So Jesus had to live his life on earth to prove that he could be without sin, to prove that he could be tested, he could be tried, he could be persecuted, he could be mocked, to prove to everyone that he could not sin. Because if he would have sinned just a little bit, he never could have paid for our sins. So that's why we say that Jesus lived a life that we could not live. He lived the perfect life. He endured every temptation, every struggle to prove that he would not sin. So that brings us to the second point. See, not only did Christ live the life that we couldn't live, but he also died the death that we deserve to die. Some people refer to this as the great exchange where God came and he exchanged all of our sinfulness for all the righteousness of Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And this is what Jesus came to do, to die the death that we deserve to die because of our sinfulness. So God didn't just send Jesus to die on the cross just so we could someday be saved. But he came to give us redemption and restoration, to give us wholeness, to take away our shame, to take away our anxiety, to take away our sickness, our infirmity, to take away anything that would prevent us from wholly worshiping God. We'll talk about that more in, uh, in Core 5, all the benefits of what Jesus does for us through salvation. But today we're just focusing primarily on Jesus dying on the cross to save us from our sins. And some people will object, saying, why shed blood on a cross? Why would Jesus have to die? Seems a little cruel. Seems a little gory. Why didn't God just come down and say, all right, you guys all sinned. I'll tell you what, I'll forgive you. We'll start over again. Well, we kind of saw, and God showed us in the story of Noah and the ark, just wiping sin out is not going to change things. So God had to send Jesus. But we also know from Hebrews 9.23, it's a powerful verse that says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. See, God set up this biblical law that blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. As gory as it is, it's hard to understand. This was a law that God set up. And God had to obey the law that he set up. God could not get out of it. And God knew the only way to obey the law that he came up with is he had to send his son that would die. I think that shows how much God believes in the own authority of his own word that he was willing to submit to it at the expense of his son. But it's hard for us sometimes as believers to submit to the word of God because we think it cost us too much. But I don't know if there's any greater cost than saying I'll take one of my kids and let them die in exchange. I don't think I could do that. 
But God was willing to submit to his own word to show us the authority of his word, the power of his word, and what happens when you obey his word. If God wasn't obedient to his word, none of us would be here. None of us would be looking at eternal life or restoration. And that's the good news of obedience. So the question is, how did Jesus dying on the cross actually transfer to us? I mean, how is it that Jesus dying on a cross that somehow or another he died for my sins? Because let's say I got a speeding ticket and the ticket was for $100 and I didn't have $100. So Andrew said, I'll tell you what, I'll go pay for your ticket. So he goes down to the police department, pays for my ticket, takes care of it. But that's not what happened on the cross. See, Jesus went to the cross because of the Roman Empire had a whole list of sins that they put on Jesus. Jesus went to the cross to die because he was convicted by the Roman Empire that he was a king of Jews and a bunch of other false charges. That would be like Andrew saying to me, I'll tell you what, Jack, I got a speeding ticket too for $100, but I didn't do anything wrong. So I'll go to the police department, I'll pay for that ticket, and then yours will be fine. Well, that doesn't make sense. Because Andrew's paying for a ticket he got even though he was innocent. How would that cover my expense for what I did wrong? See, the only way that Andrew's fine, penalty, the fine that he paid would ever go to my account is if a just judge came by and said, Andrew, you're innocent, so I'm going to let that payment you made go over to Jack. See, what happened in the Old Testament, crucifixion was a common thing. That would happen quite a bit. They'd punish the most hardened of criminals. And what they would do, if a person was going to die in a cross, they would make the cross, and then they would take a piece of paper and they would write on there all the sins that the person committed or the, all the offenses that they committed. It'd be kind of like what we would call in our, our country the rap sheet, listing everything wrong that that person did. And then on the top of the cross, they would take that rap sheet and they would nail it to the top. And you might remember, and the Bible talks about on Jesus, it said on top, King of the Jews. So that's one of the reasons they crucified him, because he claimed to be King of the Jews, and the Roman Empire said, you're not the King of Jews. So Jesus is on the cross with a rap sheet above his head. And then after the debt was paid, they would stamp the debt with the words, it is finished, meaning paid in full. But see, what nobody saw on that day, what was happening behind the scenes, is that God came and he took every one of our rap sheets and nailed it to the cross. That on that day when Jesus was on the cross, Jesus knew, God knew that Jesus wasn't guilty. So every single person that sinned, he took their rap sheet of sins that they had done and will do in the future, and he nailed them to the cross. You might remember in Colossians 2, Verse 13, it says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charges of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. That's what happened the day Jesus died at Calvary. That every sin that any of us have ever committed was nailed to the cross. And that happened even before we were born. Because Christ in his wisdom knew the sins that we'd commit. It was nailed to the cross. And you might remember Jesus' very last words. It is finished. It is paid for. And that's what Jesus said about every one of our rap sheets on the cross. And that's very good news because if you jump forward to Revelations 20, and it talks about every single one of us here, after we die, is going to stand before the great white throne of judgment. I can guarantee everybody in this room is going to stand before that throne someday after you die. And when you get to that room, they're going to have your rap sheet. Every single thing that you've ever done wrong, every sin that you've committed in the past will be there in that room. And you walk in the room and they'll start to go through it. But fortunately, every one of yours will have written on it, paid in full. And that's the gospel. that we have that confidence that someday we stand at the great white throne of judgment and our rap sheet says, paid in full. We'll talk more next week about how does that happen? Is everybody's sin nailed to the cross? How do you know if your rap sheet is on that cross? That's next week's message. That's something you really want to make sure that you know. But it's something we want to be able to communicate as a church and as people of God to other people. How do you have confidence knowing that your sins are nailed to the cross so you don't get to that great white throne room of judgment someday? Surprise! You're not on the list. It's not a good time to find that out. We all want to know now. And God will give us that confidence and security. See, in John 19, verse 30, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's the confidence that he wants us to have. But not only confidence, but he wants us to know that is why Jesus is the only way to salvation. That there's absolutely no other way you could get to salvation without God taking your rap sheet and putting it on the cross. People can come up with all these little theories in our country now saying, if you're a pretty good person, if you do more things good than bad, well, then you enter in. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you must be able to stand before the great white throne room of judgment. And if your name's not in the Lamb's book of life, if your rap sheet doesn't say it is finished, you're not going to heaven. Because somebody has to die for our sins. There's only two people that can die for our sins. 
you can die for your own sin and spend eternity in hell trying to pay back the punishment you deserve, or Jesus can die for your sins. And that's what the message of salvation is all about. Who is going to pay for your sins? Because somebody has to. Somebody has to pay for our sins. You can or Jesus can. It's really that simple of a message. So now we go to Noah. We've been... Did I miss someone? Oh, yeah. Okay, get a little excited for Noah. And the third thing is, how can Jesus give us eternal life? Is he conquered the enemy that we cannot conquer? See, in Revelations 1, verse 18, it says, And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That's what Jesus won. Jesus won back the keys from the enemy that were lost in the Garden of Eden. Jesus got back what was his. And he's given it to us today to build the church. That's why we say Jesus conquered the enemy that we could not conquer because he defeated what Satan did in the garden. So now we go back to the book of Genesis. In the first message of our core series, we talked about core one. We talked about creation in Genesis 1 and 2 about how God created a perfect plan. And God had this great and perfect plan for Adam and Eve, and he said, you know what? I'm putting you in a garden. Enjoy it. Enjoy each other. You don't have much responsibility except just take care of this little garden here. And then the enemy came in. And a lot of people wonder, well, then why did God even allow the enemy in the garden? Why did God even put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? If God would have kept that tree out, Adam and Eve would have never ate from that tree, and none of us would have anything to worry about because we'd all be in the Garden of Eden. Why didn't God just keep the tree of knowledge and good and evil out of the garden? There's a lot of different ways that I can answer this, but last week I read uh, by Matt Chandler, I had to think about what book, book it was in, uh, by Matt Chandler, and he said why that tree was in the garden. Well, today you're going to find out. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so good. He said, Matt said, he said, and I'll tell you, he said, the reason the tree is in the garden is because Adam and Eve had to learn from day one that submitting to God was a good thing. That they had to learn from day one submitting to God is a good and a beneficial thing for all of us. That Adam and Eve were never designed to be in that garden to think that they were co-equal with God, but they had to submit to him. And by putting that tree in the garden, it was a good way to remind Adam and Eve, you don't run this, but you submit to the one who created the creator. And so that tree's in the garden to serve as a reminder, but we know that that's where sin entered in. And so then we talked about how by Genesis 4, or by Genesis 3, you have the fall, and by Genesis 4, you have the first murder. <clears throat> Cain kills Abel. And then in Genesis 5, you get a genealogy. Genealogy of, of Adam. It's not a very encouraging genealogy. It's a genealogy of a lot of sinful people that did a lot of really bad things. You're five chapters into a book and you got not a very good story. And so we know what happens in Genesis 6. 
Oh, but the one good thing that happens in Genesis 5 is a name Noah is mentioned. It goes through all these people, then it stops at Noah. It gives a little description about God's plan for Noah. And then we get to Genesis 6. And it says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I am sorry I ever made them. That's God's attitude by Genesis 6. But the good news is, in verse 8 and 9, he says, But Noah found favor with God. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with our God. So we know what happens. The earth gets destroyed. Noah and his family stay alive, stay in the ark. Then we skip to the New Testament. And here in Matthew 24, Jesus is back on earth, and people are asking Jesus, you know, when is he going to come back, and and, and, and when is he going to return? And, and when will the world end? And when, when is he going to come back and save the righteous people and take everybody to heaven? And Jesus tells the people, when the Son of Man returns, he's talking about himself, it will be like it was in the days of Noah. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the, right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. So what does Jesus mean? It would be like it, what it would be like, like it was in the days of Noah. See, Jesus is painting a picture saying, before I return, let me tell you what's going to be happening in the earth. Let me tell you what's going to be happening in your country. It's going to look like a lot like it did back in the days of Noah. That wickedness is going to be more popular than righteousness. That people will be going about their daily lives living, having no regard for the future of what's going to happen. That people will be so caught up in their sinfulness that they don't even care or aren't even concerned with what is righteous and holy. That's what it's going to be like. That's when you know that Jesus is coming back, is when you can see our society and our culture looking like it was in the days of Noah. It's always so interesting to me that Noah's building this ark for over 100 years. He's building an ark, you know, about the size of a football field, bigger with the sides. Taking him over 100 years, you would expect that in the book of Genesis it would say, and while Noah was building his ark, thousands of people said, Noah, what are you doing? And he told them about the future and they repented of their sins and they came on board. That doesn't happen. Nobody comes, else comes on the boat except Noah and his family. People aren't naturally people that are going to walk up to a church and say, you know what, boy, I know the world's not looking good, so I need to figure out how to get let in. I'll talk a little bit more about that in my next point. But it's kind of an interesting situation. For 100 years, he's building this ark, 
And you don't have a bunch of stories in the Bible about what's going on while he's building it. But I want to close this message and talk to you a little bit about what was so different about Noah. Why did we have generations of people that were just kind of written off? And why would God say everybody on the earth is sinful and corrupt but Noah? What is so special about Noah? What is so different about Noah? See, the first thing that we know about Noah is that God had a plan for him. See, in Genesis 5, when it lists that genealogy of all the terrible, sinful people, when it brings up Noah, it says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toils of our hands. Only one in this whole gene genealogy was there a plan for. So there's nothing a whole different or that special about Noah, except the fact that God had a plan for him. And that's the second point. But see, what Noah did is he responded to God. See, in Genesis 6, verse 8, when it says, but Noah found favor with the Lord, another way of saying that is Noah found grace. And we talk about salvation is finding God's grace. We'll talk more about that next week. But see, God visited Noah and revealed himself to him so Noah could understand who God was. And we see that Noah responded. And his response to God was evident by his behavior. His behavior didn't get him to find favor with his God, but his favor was an indication of him submitting to God and surrendering to God. So the next point I want to talk about Noah, what's different about Noah, is that he was bold to tell other people. See, Noah spent over 100 years building that ark. And it says in 2 Peter 2, verse 5, it says, And God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of the ungodly people of the vast flood. Noah was probably a pretty good communicator, and yet he communicated to people, but nobody responded. It's interesting, we don't have any accounts in Scripture of people responding to Noah, warning the world of God's impending judgment. But Noah kept going at it. He didn't become discouraged and say, you know, nobody's listening to me. I'm just going to stop. It's pretty safe to assume that Noah got ridiculed a lot. There's nowhere in the Bible does it say people mocked Noah or they wondered why you're building that ark. But I think it's pretty safe to assume that a lot of people caught on. What is this guy doing? Why is he doing this? And he's probably a little bit crazy. <clears throat> I mean, I live in a neighborhood of maybe 40, 50 people, and I think half the people in my neighborhood commented, we got new carpeting a week ago. They just all kind of know in that little neighborhood. <laughs> and I'm sure there's a lot of people in my neighborhood who are saying, don't want to have a mocking voice. Um, why would you get new carpeting? Your house is only eight years old, you know? I'm sure there's a lot of people wonder, what were we doing? 
I can't plant a tree in my yard without neighbors commenting. So I can't imagine the guy building an ark the size of a football field not getting a little attention from the neighbors. And of course they're going to think he's crazy. But I think there's probably a lot of people that think the people in this room are pretty crazy too. That you would submit your life to somebody that's so different from culture. That you are willing to do something for God when the whole world looks at you and thinks, that is absolutely nuts. See, Noah built an ark. What God has us building is a church. Building a safe place for people to go to to find refuge from the storm that's coming. Because there's a storm coming to America. Not in the form of a flood, but there's a storm. And God's called us to build a church and to be like Noah and to preach the message of Jesus Christ, to build a church, to build a place of safety. Because God wants people saved. He wants people restored and redeemed. And we need to be like Noah that we're gonna persevere no matter what it looks like. And we're gonna be like God and we're gonna submit to the word of God even though we don't like it, it makes us uncomfortable. Siri had something to say about that one. And the final thing is Noah had great faith. He walked in obedience. He walked in persecution. And he also walked in patience. To spend over a hundred years to build something, I know some of us, we get a little frustrated if it takes longer than a couple weeks. And you're spending a hundred years to build something. I want that kind of tenacity that I'm willing to stick with something even though it's far off. See, that's why in Hebrews 11, when Hebrews 11 records, kind of it's the hall of fame of people of faith in the Bible. And it records this verse about Noah. It says, it was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about things that have never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. I like the beginning. It was by faith that Noah built the large boat to save his family. That's part of our calling as believers in Jesus Christ is to see our family saved and to see our family restored. And that's what Noah did. Father, I do thank you that you are the God of salvation. And Lord, I thank you that we can have the confidence that our sins are nailed to the cross, that we can walk with confidence, knowing that we can die someday peacefully. And Lord, I pray that there's anybody here that doesn't have the security of knowing that their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and that the rap sheet says paid in full, that you'd reveal yourself to them. And Father, I pray that each of us would be like Noah, that we would obey you no matter the cost, that we would obey you no matter what it looks like, no matter the mockery or the ridicule that we might get from other people but that we would persevere as long as it takes. 
Lord, I pray that each of us, that we would be known as people of great faith. And Lord, help us too to remember our call to see that our family is saved. And Lord, I know that uh, in Isaiah 61, Lord, you talk about that when we get saved, Lord, that salvation want, you want to see extend to families. But Lord, sometimes it's difficult because families can annoy us as well. So Father, give us grace for our family and give us faith for our family to believe that they can be saved and show us how to pray for our family. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.